Wow, so much love. Thank you. As Pastor Peter said, I'm Alberto. If you want to holler back at me, that'd be cool. Uh, if you want to take your uh, face mask and use it as a preaching rag, you can do that too. I think that's acceptable. Uh, well, welcome to the Springs. Thank you so much for, for being here for week four of our outdoor service. So if this is your first Sunday or your fourth Sunday with, uh, with us, thank you so much for, for being with us and making the commitment to worship God with us. If you're joining us via live stream, thank you so much for joining us. Can we give a hand to everyone on live stream? Shout them out. Let them know that we love you. Uh, we believe that you are here with us, and you are not an extension of our service. You're here with us worshiping God as one family. So thank you for joining us this morning. So we're just going to jump straight into it. So this week, uh, we are continuing our series through the book of Acts called People of the Way. Uh, if you're new to the Springs, one thing that, that we love is the Bible. Uh, we love to plant ourselves in the Word of God, pick a book of the Bible, and just preach through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, uh, as the Lord leads us. So what we've been doing is we've been examining the lifestyle of the early church. Uh, and the reason why we're calling this series People of the Way is because the earliest nickname, the earliest title for Christians, before they were ever called Christians, they were called people of the way, followers of the way. And I love this title because it carries a lot of deep imagery. Uh, the way kind of signifies like you're on a path, you're on a journey, and that's what the Christian life is all about. It's not necessarily about arriving at a destination, but becoming something, becoming like Jesus. So an early phrase uh, would be you're on the way, you're on the way becoming like Christ. And so We've been examining uh, different characteristics, different traits of this early church and seeing how the Word of God still applies to us thousands of years later. Uh, it's alive and it's active, and I, I believe that this Word uh, will speak to our current circumstance wherever you find yourself today. Uh, so will you please stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word? We are in Acts chapter 4. We're going to read quite a few scriptures, but I promise uh, we'll make sense of it and go slow. But we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. It says this, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Verse 5, on the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst... Come on, wind. They inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this, ha this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you. Let it be known to the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Amen. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. 
and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The word of the Lord. You may be seated as we pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, what you have done in this moment, Lord, I ask that you would do all over again in this parking lot. That you would come fill our hearts with your power and your presence. And Lord, that thousands around us would come to know you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come open up our hearts, our minds, our ears. And Lord, make our hearts good soil to receive this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, thank you. So before we unpack chapter four, I want to quickly uh, recap the series of events that has brought us to this moment in the life of Peter and John. So where we are in this story, if you can uh, imagine yourself during this time in history, is less than 100 days removed from the death of Jesus. So Israel's leaders, the political leaders and the religious leaders, decided that they wanted nothing to do with Jesus or his followers. In fact, Jesus was introducing a a new way of living, a new life that completely disrupted the norm, that disrupted the status quo. And the elite who wanted to preserve the way of life that they were accustomed to were getting frustrated. And they had plotted that they were going to put an end to this. And they succeeded. They succeeded in putting Jesus to death. And surely, these religious leaders, these political leaders must have thought, we did it. We silenced this Jesus. Because when we look back in history, Jesus wasn't the first guy claiming to be the Messiah. There were actually many before him who made this same claim that he was uh, the leader that was going to restore Israel and lead this nation into peace and prosperity. And whenever somebody sort of made that claim, uh, Israel and and Rome were just pretty good about silencing them, and, and that meant just executing them. And so they thought to themselves, surely we can do it with Jesus. He's probably one of those other guys making this claim that he's the Messiah. But Jesus was different. Jesus was God in the flesh. And so their attempts to silence Jesus failed epically because we know he rose from the dead. So there are two events Two specific events that begin to stir worry and frustration in the hearts of the religious and political leaders that conspire to put Jesus to death. The first one I just mentioned, the resurrection. They sentenced Jesus to death on account of blasphemy. He was claiming to be God. But little did they know that when Jesus claimed to be God, he was not lying. He is God in the flesh. And here's what's so incredible about the way that God works. What the enemy meant for evil... God used for good. The death of Jesus on the cross is not a moment of victory for those who oppose Jesus. Rather, it is the means by which Jesus takes upon himself the sins of the world and becomes the sacrificial lamb of God that would make us right with God. In the resurrection, we see the promise of God is fulfilled. Christ was victorious in dealing with our sin, attaining salvation for all who place their faith in him and turn away from a lifestyle of practicing sin. 
this is incredible because every single barrier has been removed. Every single barrier, sin issue that once stood in the way from you having an intimate relationship with God has been removed. Why? Because he who knew no sin became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. This event, the resurrection, has to be rooted in every single Christian's heart. And this event gives way to a second event. And this one is called Pentecost. So Pentecost is a Jewish festival that commemorates a few Jewish historical events. The Jewish calendar is filled with festivals. The way that our calendar is filled with holidays, the Jewish calendar is filled with festivals celebrating different moments in the the life and history of Israel. Now, this festival celebrates this event when Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. Uh, The law not being just the Ten Commandments, but the 600 plus laws that we see in the Old Testament. Now, the reason it's called Pentecost is because in Greek it means 50. So they celebrated the 50th day after Passover. On this day, we find Israel led by Moses on Mount Sinai, ready to receive the law, 50 days after Passover. Now, here's the question, what is Passover? Well, Passover is another Jewish festival celebrating the exodus from Egypt and the Israelites' freedom from slavery to the Egyptians. God told the Israelites to sacrifice a spotless lamb and mark their doorsteps with its blood, and the Lord would pass over that household that showed the blood, and in a very real way, the blood of the lamb saved the Israelites from death. Now, check this out. This is incredible, and only God, the author of history, could have orchestrated something like this. Jesus died during Passover week. In other words, Jesus became the spotless lamb that removes our sin and rescues us from dead, from death. And 50 days later, after Jesus dies, they're celebrating Pentecost. Yet instead of receiving the law, the people of God receive something different. They receive something totally new. They receive the spirit of God himself. This is incredible because the law would be the boundaries and the structure that that would uh, orchestrate and set the terms and parameters for being in relationship with God and holding them accountable to holiness. Now that law has been removed and now we have the spirit of God dwelling within us, giving us unhindered access and relationship to God. And the spirit leads us into all truth and righteousness. So all this is happening in Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, this was a miraculous physical event that occurred in the life of the early believers. Gathered in a room, the sound of rushing wind and fire shaped like tongues came and rested on the heads of the believers. And these things represent the presence of God. It was the inauguration event of God placing his presence in his people. It must have been a shocking experience. Nothing like this has ever happened, and this is what follows. Peter, not our Peter, but the OG Peter, he gets up and preaches one of the most fiery sermons ever recorded. And it says that about 3,000 souls were added to the family of God that day. When we consider women and children, we're looking at up to four, five, six, seven thousand. 
people in one day after one sermon added to the kingdom of God. It's incredible. And so here's what happens after that. Peter and John are, are feeling the excitement of what just happened. They're experiencing God's presence. Everything that Jesus said would happen is happening. And so they're encouraged, and they're going on their way to the temple to pray. And if you remember, this is where we pick up in Acts 3, as Peter preached last week. And as the story goes, uh, Peter and John come across a man who's been crippled from birth. Uh, He couldn't walk. He's begging for money, hustling at the temple. And Peter says, I have no money to give you, but what I do have, receive. And he says, in Jesus' name, get up and walk. And this man, who the Bible says could not walk for 40 years, had been crippled for 40 years, gets up and walks. And and Peter and John do something incredible. They do not take the credit. They say, it's not us who healed you, it was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That it was the power and the name of Jesus that restored you. To life. This, this man suffered from a condition that made it impossible for him to walk. They pray for him. He gets healed. And this happens at one of the most timely moments in the history of Israel. Because at this point in Jerusalem, the city, there was millions of people visiting from all over the known world to celebrate Passover. And so it says that a crowd forms and everyone is looking in amazement. Why? Because this guy was the local. Everybody knew that he wasn't faking it. Everybody knew uh, that that he suffered from this condition, and this probably wasn't the first time that they tried praying for him to receive healing. Yet, when they pray for him in Jesus' name, there's something about the authority and power of Jesus, who is God in the flesh, that has the power to raise things to new life. And so this this crowd is going crazy. This man is gripping Peter and John, and what does Peter do? He leverages this moment to preach the gospel. Church, if you ever find yourself in a moment where you're experiencing God's miraculous, miracle-working power, do not waste the moment. God blesses us with these moments so that we can preach the gospel. He does not bless healing and miracles for their own sake, but they give way to something better, and that is ultimate salvation in Jesus Christ. So Peter knows. He's he's ready. He's like, I just did this a few days ago. 3,000 people just got saved. He's feeling confident. And so he starts preaching the word of God. And this is where we pick up in Acts 4, verse 1 through 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, or other translations say greatly disturbed, because they were teaching and proclaiming in Jesus' name the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men that came to believe was about 5,000, not including women and children. And so what's so incredible about this moment is that Peter and John, They're not preaching rules. They're preaching the resurrection. They are preaching the gospel. And what happens as a result of their preaching? First, it greatly annoys, or as other translation says, it greatly disturbs the people. Friends, that will always happen when you proclaim the gospel. 
people will find themselves greatly annoyed and greatly disturbed. It is the promise, the fruit of good gospel preaching. Why? Because it challenges everything in our core. It challenges what we believe about the world and what we believe about ourselves. It shakes the foundations that we've built our lives on so that we can build our lives on the true foundation, the person of Jesus Christ. It greatly disturbs and it greatly annoys, but it's purposeful. Um, I've been married for a couple years, and uh, I, I think that's my wife's life verse towards me, greatly annoyed and greatly disturbed, because um, we're just the opposite. And, uh, and, and what I'm learning is that the things that about me that greatly annoy and greatly disturb her are things that need to be put to death in my own life. Things that I need, preferences and ideas that I need to put to death so that I can become more like Jesus. The gospel does that. The gospel shakes these parts of our hearts that need to be put to death so that we can come alive in Jesus. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This is the next thing that happens. Peter and John, they don't even finish the sermon. Like how incredible is that? They don't even finish the sermon and 5,000 people get saved. That's incredible. Imagine if I just walked off, like right now. Everybody just gets saved. That would be incredible. Not happening. Maybe one day. Come back next Sunday. Okay? The gospel will disturb people because it's the only news that challenges the status quo. So, so when you proclaim salvation in Jesus' name only, when you submit to the lordship of Christ and claim allegiance to his kingdom, it will disturb all other ideologies and kingdoms. And so one group in particular was greatly disturbed. And this group was the Sadducees. So now we, we've read about the Sadducees. They've come up a few times in, in the four Gospels. They're mentioned every now and then with another group called the Pharisees. And sometimes we kind of lump them together like Sadducees, Pharisees are the same thing. But, but they're actually incredibly different. You see, in the life of Jesus, during his ministry, his primary enemy were the Pharisees. Uh, they were uh, really annoyed by Jesus' teaching and way of living. And so that was his primary enemy. The Sadducees, they really didn't care about him. It, it's not until Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven that the Pharisees are no longer the primary enemy. Now the Sadducees are the primary enemy. Why? Because this religious political group rejected the resurrection of the dead. And what are Peter and John doing? preaching the resurrection of the dead. You see, the Sadducees were a first century religious political group. They held great power among the Jews in Israel. Uh, They were part of a distinguished high class, and they were connected to everything about uh, that was going on in the temple in Jerusalem. They had their hand in everything. Uh, They were wealthy, they were well off, and they politically aligned with Rome. They really didn't care about the interests of Israel. They wanted power. And so for them to attain the highest amount of power, they aligned themselves with Rome, who was occupying Israel at the time. And more than anything, they were a political party, masked as a religious party. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in the spiritual realm. They did not believe in life after death. They did not believe in a future hope. 
And that is why they're sad, you see. Risked it. My wife said not to do it for the gospel. They were sad, you see. Okay? Let's keep going. (laughs) One thing they absolutely did not believe in was the resurrection. Now this group becomes the foremost enemy of the early church in Acts. A lot more can be said about this group, but one thing that is important to point out is that this group represents the old way of doing things. They were greatly annoyed, they were greatly disturbed because they were trying to preserve an old way of doing things. If you make a commitment to follow Jesus and you try to preserve your old way of doing things, you will become greatly disturbed and greatly annoyed. Why? Because the gospel is not about an old way of doing things. The gospel is about a new way of doing things. I love the way uh, my friend Josh puts this. He says that, that the enemy to the new life is a comfortable life. The enemy to new life is the comfortable life. And this is what the Sadducees were representing. Uh, They were comfortable in their way of living. They were comfortable having power. And now the people of Jesus are frustrating their lifestyle. And they failed to, to realize that they were being called to something greater than themselves. So we so we keep reading, and it says that they didn't even finish their sermon before they had Peter and John arrested. Now, let's look at verses 5 through 6. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Now, it's important to remember that this moment is staged with all sorts of political and religious corruption. There was all sorts of political and religious corruption that ultimately led to Jesus being sentenced to death. And so notice who it says were in attendance. Annas and Caiaphas. These are the same individuals that oversaw part of Jesus' trial and helped condemn him to death. If you have your Bible, or if you're on the Bible app, we're going to look at John chapter 18, verse 12 through 14. This moment was, was less than 100 days earlier. It says that the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Sounds familiar. Like we just read, the, the same people just arrested Peter and John and bound them, threw them in jail. Verse 13, first they led him to Annas, For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Annas and Caiaphas, the, the religious leaders that opposed the way of Jesus... had had a firsthand part to play in the execution of Jesus. They thought that if they could kill Jesus, uh, they thought they could put an end to the Jesus movement that was taking the nation by storm. Now, less than 100 days later, from John chapter 18 to Acts chapter 4, they're getting incredibly frustrated. They're they're noticing that, that their plot is not working that the more they try to stop the movement of God, it seems like the more it gets amplified. 
the more they try to uh, limit what's going on in the life of the disciples, the more they, they scatter and people turn to Jesus. So they're getting frustrated. Now, can you imagine how Peter and John must be feeling? They, they just have had an overnight stay in jail. They're greatly despised by the people in power. And this moment is a familiar moment. And in many ways, it's a sorrowful moment. History seems to be repeating itself. And they stand in trial before the same people that put Jesus to death. I mean, imagine what's, what's going on in their lives. They must be feeling the weight of this, thinking to themselves, they put Jesus to death. They succeeded in that. Surely they're going to put us to death. And so the author John actually serves a, a very humanizing moment in the life of his spiritual giant friend, Peter. After we read about Jesus standing before Annas and Caiaphas, this is what the following verse says in verse 15. It says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you are also not one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter in this moment straight up lies to this little girl and says, I am not. Less than 100 days earlier, Peter denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And so I can't imagine what's going on in Peter's mind or in the life of the disciples because he does not have a good track record for persecution. This is a familiar moment, and yet what happens as we continue to read is, um, things are getting a little overheated here, trying to get some shade. Um, One second, here we go. So what happens next is that the high priests are questioning Peter and John. And we look at verse 7, and they said they inquired him, by what power or by what name do you do this? And then verse 8, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter said to them, rulers and people and the elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, to the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. A completely different Peter. Where we see him in John chapter 8 reject Jesus and run away from Jesus, we see something new happen here. He's filled with power and boldness. And I love what he continues to say. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. He's getting bold. He's saying, you rejected him. You put him to death. And yet it says that, Peter says that there is salvation in no one else. No other name under heaven given among which men must be saved. In this moment, we're experiencing something incredible and powerful. And and the question becomes, what happened? 
what happened in the life of Peter? What happened in this moment where we see him 18 days later, he cowers before a little girl, and, uh, or 18 chapter, chapter 18, and now he stands before the highest religious political elites, and with all boldness and confidence, he says, you put Jesus to death, and yet your plan failed. And there is salvation. There is rescue, healing, and wholeness. There is life found in the name of Jesus, in the person of Jesus, and no one else. And I love what happens next. It says that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. One of the things that I love so much about this moment is, is how real uh, the Bible portrays these characters. They're humans just like you and me. Because where we see Peter in John chapter 18, he gets it wrong. He fails. He has a humiliating experience. And yet we see him make an epic comeback in Acts chapter 4, and he's standing up to the elites and saying, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so what this means for you and for me is that you can't measure your spiritual fruitfulness by how successful you are in following Christ. You can't gauge your spiritual fruitfulness by how awesome you're doing. Because when we think about it, you can follow Jesus and still get it wrong. You can follow Jesus and still experience epic failure. You can follow Jesus and your marriage be on the rocks. You can follow Jesus and have very real, hopeless nights of anguish and sorrow. You can follow Jesus and feel the pain of 2020 and the world caving in on you. And yet you can still be with Jesus while all those things are happening. You see, you can follow Jesus and have incredible moments where you see thousands get saved. You can follow Jesus and lay hands on a sick person and see someone get saved and healed. You can follow Jesus and see your marriage restored and your kids come to the faith and see breakthrough in your relationships and family. And yet the common denominator in both circumstances is that you're following Jesus and that he's with you. And so what I love about this moment is that Peter didn't remain in John chapter 18. And, and in fact, this, he, he would have another low moment that we'll read about later in the book of Acts. Yet Peter remained committed to Jesus because Jesus was committed to him. In church, as long as you remain committed and faithful to Jesus, Jesus promises to be committed and faithful to you. You see, what God will often do is, is that he'll take that place where you are to get you to a place where he wants you to be. And this is what's so incredible about God is that he can take a, a, a failing moment in Peter's life and use it to get him to where he wants to be, where Peter finds no other confidence in himself except in the person of Christ. And sometimes what God will do in our lives is that he'll take us through situations and circumstances uh, that we couldn't have planned on our own to get us to where he wants us to be so he can shake our lives, greatly annoy us, greatly disturb us, so we can come away built on the cornerstone, the firm foundation of Christ. And so there's two takeaways uh, from this text. 
how do we experience this life and how do we get in on this? The answer is found in the word. Verse 8, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. If you are going to do anything great and wonderful for God or with God, you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what's incredible is that uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit is not just a a one-and-done occurrence. In Acts chapter 2, it says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now it says in Acts chapter 4, Peter is refilled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the mission of God requires the presence of God empowering us to do what God wants us to do. And so if you're going to see any sort of breakthrough, if you're going to see the kingdom of God invade your marriage, your family, your relationship, your work, your school, you need to be in partnership with the presence of God. And this is what God has made available for us, that we can have relationship with the Holy Spirit. And the second thing is incredible. Verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Church, this is my prayer for this community. That we would be, uh, whatever your title is, common, ordinary, Uh, if you have a cool title, uh, if you're distinguished and accomplished, it does not matter. But that we would be a people where the world looks in on us and they would say, that group, that person has been with Jesus. Common and ordinary, and we would astonish the world. Why? Because we've been with God. If we're going to do great things for God and for his kingdom, we need to be filled with his spirit, and we need to be with Jesus. And so this is my prayer for all of us. So, so what does this look like? Um, well, I think the immediate thing is, is, is be with Jesus. And, uh, and sometimes we overcomplicate this. I'm, I'm so guilty of this. I'm going to say this. You don't have to come to church to be with Jesus. You get extra Jesus when you come here. But you don't have to um, do certain religious things to be with Jesus when Jesus has made his presence available to you. So, so this is what it, what it can look like. As simple as this. You wake up in the morning, and you ask Jesus to be with you. You walk through the kitchen, and as you cook breakfast, you ask Jesus to be with you. You make your way through your apartment, through your home, and as you open that door, you ask Jesus to be with you so that you can be the light and the representation, the representative he's called you to be in your work, on the campus, in the school, wherever God's called you. You're driving in your car and you ask Jesus, be with me. You're getting out of your car, walking into H-E-B, you ask Jesus to be with you. And I believe something supernatural happens, that, that the more we occupy our minds and our thoughts and our attentions to the person of Christ, the more we begin to look like him. And so the challenge is simple. As you exit this parking lot, you ask Jesus, be with me. Lead me. Second, be in his word. Uh, Make time for his word. Uh, There is no excuse for not being in the word of God. I'll say that boldly. We have more access and availability to the word of God than ever before. Uh, If you don't like to read, do the audio Bible. Uh, If you don't like the voice on the audio Bible, download Streetlights Bible. 
This is some really cool, like, spoken word with some hip-hop beats behind the music. It's dope. It's awesome. Right, Alec? He said yes. Uh, If you don't like that audio Bible, download this Bible app called Dwell, where you can actually pick the voice you want to hear and the background music. There is no excuse for not being in the Word of God. There is so much. God who controls the universe and orchestrates every single part of your day will not burden you, will not preoccupy you to the point where you cannot be with him in his word. And ultimately, it's a matter of priority. Third, be in prayer. Simplest prayer, Holy Spirit, fill me. Holy Spirit, Fill me so I can become all that you've called me to be in Christ Jesus. Jesus, I love you. Thank you for all that you've done. We don't have to complicate a relationship with God. He's made it so simple. As we come to the table, I want to close with this question. And it's simple. Are you being with Jesus? Are you making time for him? Or are you letting the busyness of life become an excuse for not being with your creator? And second question, do you find yourself greatly annoyed? Do you find yourself greatly disturbed? Maybe, maybe the Lord is shaking something in your life that he's asking you to turn away from so you can build your life on something better. Now, as we transition... Uh, into communion. I want to invite the worship team back up.